Good morning, good to see you. Glad you're here. I, I love the refrain in that last song over and over again, Jesus is better. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, that's the theme of that book. Jesus is better than angels, and Jesus is better than Moses, and Jesus is better than Solomon, and Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. And So I'm thinking about superlatives and comparatives and adjectives for some reason. I'm an English teacher sometime, because last, last week we had a song before I came up that was holy, holy, holy over and over again, and... The reason we sing holy, holy, holy is because in the Hebrew language, there is no uh, comparative or superlative uh, suffix. So you, you, you can't say, you know, uh, holy, holier, and holiest. You just say the word again. So holy, holy, holy means holiest. There's nobody better. And, you know, two holies would be comparative. And then in the song we just sang better, and in the New Testament in Hebrews, that better, I've often wondered... Why don't we just say Jesus is the best? I mean, why stay in the comparative um, adjective form when you could just say he's, he's best? And I don't know if this is the best answer to that question, but it's better than most. Uh, <laughs> just fell into that one. But it's the one that God has, has helped me with because I really, I asked him, I'm reading Hebrews and I'm like, just get it over with and just say Jesus is the best and then you don't have anything else to say. And here's what I feel like I sorted through with the Holy Spirit. If you keep Jesus in the comparative and you say he is better, it is way more applicable. When you say Jesus is the best, and here's what we do too often, and I do it too, we're guilty of this. Jesus is the best. He's in a league of his own. He's over here. And so then someone will even ask you a simple question like, who's your best friend? And you don't say Jesus because he's over there in this whole other category. Who's the best person you know? Well, my wife. Well, what about Jesus? Is Jesus better than your wife? Yeah. So I guess he's the best person I know. And so I think if we, if we put Jesus as best, we put him in this category we don't even consider him. We consider him other and outer and not applicable to our lives. And then we just live life without him. But if we keep him comparable, comparable better, then we realize amazingly all the time he is better than everything we compare him to. Isn't that awesome? He's better than everything we ever compare him to. So I want to encourage you to keep him, that refrain we sang, to let that make a difference in your life, that Jesus is better. And to just test and see if the Lord is good as you go through life this week. See if he's not, see if you can't prove in your own life and to others he indeed is better than everything you compare him to. Okay. That's just comment on the song. Let's look at 1 Peter. I'm glad to be here and I'm going to miss you the next two weeks. I'm on vacation and I'll be back until the end of August. And I've enjoyed getting this awesome honor and responsibility to, to preach. But I won't miss you enough not to go. So. <laughs> so, as I'm on a cruise with my wife, I'll miss you a little bit. Um, we're looking at verses 7 through 17. Last week we talked about wives and being submissive. In verse 7 he talks to husbands. Then in verse 8, he opens it up to all of the congregation. But it's the same idea, submission, unity, harmony, living at peace with people, which doesn't happen naturally, only happens supernaturally when we know Jesus is better. 
and we treat him as such. So we're going to read verses 7 through 17 of 1 Peter. If you will stand, I'll read the text and then pray, and then we'll start unpacking this good passage. Likewise, husbands, like, like the wives, like the servants mentioned, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless, for, this, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to live life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Jesus, help us, help me, to see truths in this passage, willing to embrace as truths for our lives, and change us to live better because we met here this morning. And to see you all week long, as better than everything we compare you to and to compare you always so that it becomes an opportunity to praise you for being so good. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week was Wives Be Submissive Week, but I didn't tell you there was some good news in there beforehand because, you know, you're not just submissive, you're you're strong and influential and beautiful and mysterious and submissive, and they're all wrapped up, and we talked about that. And the word submissive is not very difficult to break down. We know that sub means underneath or behind, like submarine is underneath the water, and mission means like what someone's doing. So it's good news when it comes to the fact that means the husband has a mission and the wife, is, the wife is underneath or behind that mission. She's like, yeah, I'm all about it. Well, then the good news is when you get to the husband's mission, it's to love the wife. So it's not some like abusive, threatening thing. It's this love cycle that's awesome. It's like my job as the husband's to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Her job is to support me in loving her. That's great. That's good news. And so we start with the specifics of how a husband should be able to love his wife well. It says, live with your wives in an understanding way. So the first breakdown is to know her, to seek to understand her. Which, I mean, we know it's, it's funny and we're, we, we may chuckle, but in all honesty, 
which is something you'll never check off your list, right? You'll never, I understand her now. Whew! Only took me two years. Yeah, right. We don't. We don't understand you. We don't understand how when you say you don't care where we're going out to eat, and then we pick a place, you don't want to go there. We don't understand. <laughs> so, it's obviously not something we would master, and they, all of these characteristics are just ways of being. Be a husband that's constantly seeking to live with his wife in an understanding way, to know her. As the passage says, a weaker vessel. This is almost certainly talking about frame and strength. This is a day and age of manual labor. It was the husband that's doing the providing. And so he's saying, remember, she's not out working like you, and you can work, and she works at the house, and you need to tend to her and care for her. And, be, and we know that it's not just weaker in stature or in worth because of the next phrase. And remember that she is a common heir of the grace of life. So that phrase clarifies, look, it's not that she's less important by any means. It says she's a weaker vessel. She has a weaker frame. He's telling his husbands to tend well to her and to remember that she is equal to you in the grace that she has received and that she is a common heir. So respect her. So you know her, you care for her, you respect her. I remember the, the very first task I ever had in ministry. I was 18 years old. I'd signed on to be a youth minister intern for the summer. And the very first task I had was to cut a VBS sign. It was oversized and it needed to be cut down to fit on a banner or something. I can't remember. And, you know, it's always important to have the right tool for jobs. And we didn't have a knife or a saw. And the youth minister found a scalpel in his desk. And he's like, here. And it's a vinyl sign and I'm going to go cut it with a scalpel. And I hadn't used a lot of scalpels in my life and did not know that I had this one upside down on my finger. So I, I get it, and my finger's just barely on it, and then when I go to cut, it cuts, and there's blood all over the sign. And I remember running back in, and, and it's throbbing. I run back to the youth minister, and I have zero care at this point about VBS. No care. Zero care about the sign. All I care is about this, this finger. And so, Peter says it this way. You should know her, you should understand her, you should respect her, you should care for her. But Paul said it this way. You should love her as you love your own body. And so we have a metaphor, guys. If, if you cut your finger, you go get it tended to. If you had a headache, you, you pop some pills. If you're tired, you take a nap. So we have this metaphor all day long of how we are to care for our bodies and Scripture tells us, okay, what you've been doing with your body, now do with your wife. As she has needs, tend to them. As she needs to care for, care for her. Mandy's grandmother, uh, I guess just in November? When did she die? February? Um, she got bad sick in November and died in February and was this amazing wife who had, as, as a picture of the, that woman who lives up to this. And her husband died years and years before her uh, from cancer. And I remember a picture of them. It's one of, the, one of the final times they were together, really, before he was so sick that he, they, they couldn't really be together. But he was sitting in a chair, and he needed to cough because of this cancer. And she was behind him, and she was just rubbing his back. 
And it was his mission at that moment was to cough, and her submission was to be behind him, making it as easy as possible to cough. And it's just a picture of what the Bible's calling us to as husbands and wives. It is not an oppressive, complicated issue. It's to be like Christ loves the church and to be like you love your own body and to make it easy for the wife to support the husband who's loving her. So Peter calls us to that. And now he broadens, he's been specific, and now he's going to broaden to everybody. Finally, all of you, in verse 8, have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. There's a lot now. I can't take every verb there, but we can try to take an expression. So in Christian community. So at home, the Christian husband is living at peace. And now in community, we are also living in peace and living in harmony and trying to love one another and respect one another and serve one another like we practice in the husband-wife relationship. So three major points that kind of summarize that. One is having the same father above should be so powerful that brothers and sisters get along with each other. That doesn't mean they always agree with each other. It just means that they can get along with each other. I have four kids because I do not want five. <laughs> two of them, the middle two, I cannot leave at the house alone. And this came to, as a surprise to me. My older son had to fill me in on this. He's like, Daddy, when you're not around, they just like beat each other up. I was like, wow. So as I, you know, kind of sneak in or eavesdrop or whatever, I saw this, so I can't leave them alone. But they never did this when I was around. So when I was around, they knew how to act. And then as, as Christians, the, the thing we have to remember is the Father's always around. He's never gone. The Holy Spirit's here. We've always got Him in our presence, and we should always be aware that we're, we're treating each other with Him as a witness, and we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan says, you know, because we, we know from Scripture that every person in the church has a part and that we're the body of Christ and we're all working together. And it is true that sometimes we wonder, are you the appendix? Because we don't know what you do, but sometimes you explode. <laughs> so, so, some, so sometimes it, it's, it's, it, that metaphor is difficult. But, the Bible makes it clear we're all in this together and we're all working together and, and we can do it best by valuing all that was listed there. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, not repaying evil for evil. So a second point for that same idea is having the same sin. We have these two huge things in common. I shouldn't say things. These two facts are common about us. One is we all have a sinful nature, and two, as believers, we all have the Holy Spirit living with, within us. Those two realities, having the same sin nature and having the same Holy Spirit, should be powerful enough that brothers and sisters fill with each other and consider others better than themselves and classify them as higher in worth. So that, in verse 9, we don't repay evil for evil. But on the contrary, we bless. Scripture says, and we don't, we, but we don't apply it. And I know that's true for so many verses. But Scripture says 
rejoice with those who rejoice. And it says, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. And isn't it our nature, and it causes conflict, to do the complete opposite? Our nature is, if you're in a really good mood, I feel like it's my job to calm you down. Like, what is wrong with you? And if you're really, really sad, I feel like my job is to, like, lift you up. Don't be like that. And so... We do the complete opposite of what Scripture says. When we enter into a room and someone's obviously got an overwhelming emotion, if it's rejoicing, we'll try to calm them down, and if it's sadness, we'll try to lift them up. And Scripture says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. So think about how community would change if in our relationships, instead of trying to make people more like us, how can I get them to be more like me and my disposition because I don't want to be that excited and I don't want to be that sad. So they shouldn't be either. I mean, think about the sacrifice it would take and the effort it would take and the prayers it would take to actually be a person who applied that simple verse. When you're with someone and they're sad, you're sad with them. And when you're with someone and they're happy, you're happy with them. It seems so small, but it, it's what Peter's talking about here, to be of one mind when he starts. To classify others better than yourself. And it leads to blessing. It leads to, to a better life. Verse 10, it's amazing. It says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. So the recruiting for people who want to live in harmony, it, it isn't for people who really want to suffer. This is going to be really hard. It's going to be awful. You're going to totally regret it. Would you please? try to get along. It's not like that at all. It's like for people who want the good life, for people who, who like joy, for people who would like peace, let's all try to get along and let's surrender our preferences to get along with each other. So it's, it's, it's a great thing. It's a blessing. And the list is similar to the one we've already read. If we want that, continuing in verse 10, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In verse 9 and 10, there's this idea. It's stated in verse 9 exactly, in verse 10 expressed, that we are called to be a blessing. Two sermons ago, we had the phrase that we, were, that we should suffer because we have been called to this. So in a very, very short time, Peter has said that we are called to two things. That we're called to suffer and that we're called to be a blessing. I cannot assume that that is an accident and did, he didn't know that he wrote that or that it wasn't inspired. We know that he knew and we know it was inspired. So there must be a connection between suffering and blessing. And there is, of course. We know another word for suffering is passion. We know a, a prerequisite to bless is to have compassion. And so we, we also know that the greatest suffering ever brought the greatest blessing ever. That Jesus upon the cross made way for the resurrection in the, of him and the redemption for us. And so I don't think it's reading into the text too much to say that what, what Peter's talking about here 
is that we don't run from suffering, that it happens, and that as we suffer, we will be made, if we do it well, to be a blessing for others. And that if we run from suffering, we will miss out on being a blessing to others. That, that being a blessing to others does not happen apart from suffering. You, they go together. And too many times we want just the blessing and not the suffering. And it just doesn't work that way. We are called to both. They were connected in Christ and they are connected in his body, the church. I love verse 13 says, what, Who is there that's going to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? Well, not many people, I think, is the assumption answer that we give. Well, not many people, but certainly there could be some because the next verse says, but even if you should suffer. So Peter's saying, look, I'm not saying you live this way, you live at peace, that you're never going to have suffering or problems. You're going to. It's just that when you have them, it'll be the people giving them to you that are in the wrong, not you. And I love his realistic assumption that we're all going to suffer. He's, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it, then read it. Basically, I love his realism. He, do, he doesn't say, if you live this way, you'll have less suffering. If you live this way, you'll have more suffering. He says, look, you're going to suffer. Everyone's going to suffer. People who live in wickedness suffer, and people who live in righteousness suffer. So, suffering is not even on the table as an option to remove. The only question is, will you suffer while you're obeying? Or will you suffer while you're rebelling? That's, that's the only variable. Here's how he says it. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, that is the people who are bringing the suffering. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And then verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Seems to make it clear. You're going to do good and that could bring suffering. You're going to do evil and that brings suffering. And so getting away from suffering isn't, preoccupies so much of our focus and shouldn't. Suffering's just going to happen. When it happens and we're obedient, we're able then to be a blessing. Now, I purposely skipped something that I wanted to say last because it's the most surprising insight I found in this passage. <clears throat> Twice, Peter mentions prayer in a way that we don't usually think of prayer. So I want to show them to you. Usually, and, and, and this is true for sure, usually we would think, okay, to live this way, to like, to really not return evil for evil, to really absorb when I want to be angry, to really consider others better than myself, as Scripture tells us. Thankfully, that is a mathematical term when Scripture says consider other people better than yourselves. It means classify them. It means as you, in your ledger, consider them. It doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. It's just mathematically consider them better, consider them more worthy. So we're living that way. We're celebrating, we're living in peace and harmony. You would think to do that, we have to pray. And you would think if he mentioned prayer, that's how he would mention it. 
Pray so you'll be able to do this. He doesn't do that. He does the complete opposite. He says twice, if you don't do this, you won't be able to pray well. So I want to show you both of those things and then repent. Because it was very convicting to me. In verse 7, when he says husbands should live well with their wives, look what he says at the very end of verse 7. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Not pray so that you can live well with your wife, even though we, cert- we know that, that would, we could find that in other places, right? We know that that's true. But he reversed it and he said, live well with your wife so that your prayers won't be hindered. And then look at the end of verse 12. Or all of verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the righteous are the people he just described that are bringing blessings and living in harmony. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, live in harmony and community, and you'll be able to pray better. I was so struck by this. I'm going to have to change my life in repentance, and maybe you do too. And here is my repentance and my confession. I do not pray enough for the threat that my prayers would be hindered to matter much to me. And I'm blown away by the commitment level that must have been in these early readers that when Paul wanted to motivate them, when he's looking for the best leverage possible to get them to change, he says, do this or your prayers will be hindered. And you can just imagine these new believers like, no, anything but that. Of course we'll live this way because we want our prayers to be awesome and and received and we've got to commune with God. And that blew me away. And I thought, so often I only think of prayer as something to help me with something else and I don't think of living well as something that will then help me pray better. And so just as there's a cycle in the husband and the wife relationship where what she's supporting is good for her because his job is to love her, there's this cycle in this passage between living well and praying. Of course you need to pray to live well, and then as you live well, we should be motivated to live well so we can pray better. And then what happens when we pray better? We live well, and then we can pray better. And there's this cycle of experiencing God and pleasing Him that comes through living right and praying. Now, at the end of this passage, verse 18, I'm going to prime you for next week, says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. You need to pray for the person who is preaching to you next week. Because the most complicated passage in 1 Peter is the passage that he will have explaining what does it mean that Jesus went and preached to people in prison. Where was his prison? Who did he preach? Why did he have to preach if they're not on the planet Earth? What's going on here? So as you pray, live well to better your prayers this week. Add to your prayers for you to enjoy a great sermon from someone else. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you only because you first 
loved me and we love you only because you first loved us. And you demonstrated your love profoundly. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. I pray that we would live in a way that is full of brotherly love and harmony, that we would celebrate in a community and the concept of living life together, that we would enjoy this gift of a church family. I pray that husbands would be better husbands and wives would be better wives, but also for every member of Grace Bible to be better members of Grace Bible. And I pray that all of us would have a prayer life that we dare not want threatened, that we care so much about that we will live in whatever way you declare, just so that it doesn't get into the way of the sweet fellowship we have with you, talking to you and listening to your voice. And I pray we might even start that journey now through song, that we would really commune with you and love you and sense your presence and your pleasure and repent and live for you this week. I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand?